Ah, all right. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere, damn if I know where, somewhere in the Los Angeles area. <coughs> Following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. This uh, character next to me is, what's his name? Uh, Mark, uh, the, uh, Mark Boyer. Checker. Yeah. And uh, on the telephone, I believe, correct me if I'm mistaken, <laughs> Daniel Guinness. Hey, there he is. Yay. One of my favorite people in the whole world. And his wife has a red leather dress. She does. Yes, she does. And she looks hot at it, too. Uh, Daniel's been on the program many, many times. And every time he's hyped this book that supposedly he had written, and that supposedly was going to be coming out, I believed him. And uh, I was right. The book is called Sentence. Ten years and a thousand books in prison. Not only does it have an excellent cover, but the book is every bit as good as I hoped it would be. Congratulations, Daniel. Brilliant Thank you job. So much. Have you really read it, Burl? Yes. It's in his hot little hand. Well, but I like the fact that in this book, sentence ten years and thousands, uh, thousand books in prison. You didn't do it in, in the. Gee, I arrived in prison. This is what it was like day by day. My. Uh, you know, right. Uh, I like that you didn't do that. I like that yes, you. Yes. You did it as if you were, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, you know, an investigator, uh, uh, an, an anthropologist. anthropologist. I mean, that, to be honest, when I had to lie down in bed at night, or not in bed, in a cot, and make some kind of sense of this nightmare I was living, one of the ways I could make it a little easier on myself is say. Just pretend you're an anthropologist. Pretend you've been sent here to study what's going on in this place, because nobody knows. Nobody in the real world knows what the hell actually happens inside inside of a place like this. And uh, you'll be able to find out. And that's, you know, that it came true. I did find out. And I, I learned things, and I saw things, which I don't think most normal people will ever see in their life. If you, if you remember how the book begins, it begins with a man eating a shit sandwich. Yeah. Well, no, who's really? When do you see that in normal life? Not often. Who, uh, uh, not didn't, often. Uh, Russ Meyer have, <laughs> Russ have Meyer, that woman guy eat one in a movie. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But not not in real life. I believe I mean, he I said don't. it was real. Okay, you you can argue about that some other yeah, time, we'll Mark. Other time. But in, in most people's day to day life, like Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver, whatever, you don't eat a shit sandwich. No, no. And, um, you know, other things, my, my first bunkie, he was, they tried to kill him, but, you know, about 25 feet away from me. These two, two guys stabbed him in the face. And they did their best to murder him. He, he was the strongest guy in the yard. He actually got up from uh, with a pool of blood underneath him, and he chased them with a rock. Uh, he just he couldn't get to him fast enough. Mm. But having seen such uh, ultra violence, you know, and uh, some of the other things that I I, I witnessed, I knew that only I, you know. In my circle, in my world, where I've seen such things, 
And while there are plenty of other people around me who have also seen them, how well equipped are they to tell the story? Not well. No, not, not as well. I mean, I, I, I don't want to say that I was that, you know, I, they needed me to tell their story. Uh, but I did teach a lot of people how to read their first, you know, their first children's book. And I did write a lot of letters for people who could write. Literacy is a real problem. For a it's even becoming a, a real problem outside of prison. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, see that too. But, but I mean, real functional, you know, literacy is, is. I mean, it's not a joke when somebody is handed a form and it's just gibberish to them. What kind of opportunities do you have in life when that's your, you know, it's, a, it's like a, 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 you know. Freeway Ricky Ross, the uh, famed uh, cocaine uh, entrepreneur here in Los Angeles. Was he, was he illiterate? Yes, he was a tennis champion. He was on a tennis uh, fast track all the way through high school, never learned to read. My God. And he, he told he was on the show, and he mentioned that because he was so good at tennis, they just kept letting him go up the grades, even though they hadn't taught him to read. That is awful, awful. Uh, but a, a lot of a lot of prisoners, when they were stuck in the situation that for entertainment they had to read books instead of watch things, mm -hmm. and for communication they had to write letters instead of talk on a phone or in person. All of a sudden, they found themselves at a loss right. because when they were in solitary, and all you can do is amuse yourself by reading, you know, crime and punishment because it's long. Uh, and you can't, you know. That's how you. That's why I had people on either side of me who would bang their heads on the wall in solitary because they were going mad with boredom. Uh, sometimes they would they would play with their poop. They would smear feces on the walls. Well, it's art. They, they would really <laughs> lose it in there, you know. And the same thing with the letters. When when you're in solitary, you can't go on the phone. All you, all you can do is write letters. And it's very frustrating when, you know, the woman in your life writes you a letter and maybe you can, maybe you can read it, but, you know, maybe you don't have the capacity to answer it. That's why I never said no to somebody who asked for help in that regard. It was sometimes irritating because I wanted to just, you know, teach them, you know, show them how to write a sentence instead of doing it for them. Because what they usually wanted from me was to, to just do it. Yeah. Um, they'd offer me money and, you know, but, but um, about half the time I would get, I would, I would be able to teach them something and the other half I would end up doing it for them. Yeah. At one time I, I very much regretted it. I wrote a love letter to a guy who uh, told me he very much loved his wife and missed her so much. And I really put my, my, all my efforts into it. And uh, I succeeded, bro. His wife came up to, to visit. Now, this was a good-looking young guy in great shape. The woman who came up was 400 pounds. Yeah, that's right. And, yes, and she was, uh, you know, he had told me that he desired her and loved her and everything. And then when she visited, he spent the whole time getting her to stuff in the catalog. Oh, smart fellow. And I, <laughs> I realized that I had facilitated the hey. complete abuse of this uh, yeah, poor woman. Yeah, he conned her. He conned her. 
He conned her and he conned me too. Yeah. He conned me into helping me convince her to start coming to visit him again. And with, with the things I wrote in my letter, she really believed that he was, uh, wow. you know, he had Smitten. desire for her. I felt really bad about that one, I'll tell you. Well, that, what are the, what the cards you gave with her wallet? Did that start your career with Penthouse Forum? <laughs> you you mentioned you mentioned uh, uh, what some what happens to people when they're in solitary, which yeah. begs the question: You must have been there to to understand. What did you do to get tossed into solitary? Okay, so I I was sent to solitary four times, and of the four times, only one time would I say I was guilty and deserving of it. And that was the time that I had a legitimate dirty urine. So I got 90 days for, for uh, having taken a morphine pill. That was the time that I deserved it. So the other three times in solitary. So uh, a very ridiculous one was not enough urine in a cup. They took a couple drops of pee from me. They let me go. And then they changed their mind the next day and decided they couldn't test such a small amount and I needed to be locked up. And I got 90 days for that. I actually tried to get that reversed in a real court because it seemed like it wasn't my fault. I mean, how am I to know how much urine is necessary? Uh, and uh, no, the judge said I was guilty. Huh. I deserved to do a three months in the box for not enough urine. So then... Well, you premeditated. It was a conspiracy yeah. between you and your bladder. No, I was totally clean, actually. I'm just really bad at peeing when someone's yelling at me. Yeah, I know it's a problem. You freeze up. There's a name for it, pyuresis, or shy, uh, shy bladder. It's actually a well-known condition, but they, they, they pretend like they don't know that. They, they say you're doing it on purpose, of course. So the, uh, the third time I got sent to the bus, now, this is a really ridiculous one, but I only got 15 days for it. The third time was for having uh, a threatening facial expression. A what? A threatening facial expression. Nobody ever believes it the first time they hear it because it's such time. How the hell do you have a threatening facial expression? So what, so I, so what had happened is this. I, I had gotten very sick. I had a really bad cold. Um, my ear was infected. I had a high temperature. And uh, in that particular jail, you can't stay inside. You have to go out to the yard. So in order to go up to be able to stay in bed, I had to go to the nurse at six in the morning and get a pass for it. And, you know, the cop who was on duty, he saw me sneezing and, you know, he said, kids, just go get a pass. It's no big deal. So I go to the nurse, but I got really unlucky and I hit on the, the mean nurse and I told her, she took my temperature, she saw how I was uh, full of snot and sick. And she said, I said, it's raining outside. Please give me a bed pass for the day. And she said, well, since it's raining and you're sick, the best thing for you is to go outside and, and go in the rain. Well, really? So I, I, was, I was just so disgusted by this. Now, I knew by then 
not to not to mouth off, especially to a civilian. And I knew I was good at controlling my my face because I knew that they watched you for defiance, you know. But at that moment, I lost control of my face. Oh no! And for one for one moment, I, I showed my disgust with this woman who calls himself a medical professional who's sending me to the yard with an infected eardrum and and, and a hundred. Or temperature, and she says the best thing for me is the rain. Oh yeah! And I, I must have had such a look of just hatred and disgust <laughs> on me that she she said this one can't leave. And uh, the guard said, "What did you do, man?" And, and it was easy. And I didn't do anything. Uh, and she actually wrote it up honestly. She said that it was my facial expression. So when I got to the hearing, the hearing officer said, "Well." You didn't technically do anything, but you're already here in the box, so we're just going to give you the minimum and uh, call, call it call it harassment. I said, harassment how? I didn't even say anything. He said, well, harassment for your appearance. Huh. So apparently my appearance was enough to harass this woman who wanted me to go die in the rain. <laughs> uh, well, Oh, and of course, the fourth time is the famous time. The fourth time I went to the box, was when I went to the box for buying five human souls. Of course, and that—that's my—that was my first ever publication. Advice, and that was the story I, I often tell at public. You know, when I speak publicly, people love to hear that tale about how uh, I had too many guys hit me up for coffee, so I wrote a contract. A uh, contract which uh, said you can uh, have a cup of coffee, but you have to sign over your soul. Sounds and, like Scientology. Uh, yeah. Well, no, don't they, they cost a lot more in Scientology, <laughs> I think. But, um, so five people signed over their souls that night, and everybody had a good laugh over it, but I should have thrown away the contract. I had made them look just way too good. <laughs> and the next, the next day, uh, there were some real Bible-thumping cops working, and they found those contracts sitting on my locker, and uh, I got pulled out of the yard, you know? I got, my name was called over the loudspeaker, and I was with two of my friends, and I, when something like that happens, you immediately say goodbye, just oh, in yeah. case. And uh, in, in that case, I was correct to say goodbye, because I never saw either of them again. I was taken, I, I went to the yard, I got thrown on the floor, brutally, uh, you know, handcuffed and thrown into the back of a van and uh, driven to, a, to a, a solitary. And I was given 90 days, um, and they gave me the max for, for uh, unauthorized exchange. Ah. Amazing. Yeah, so those are, those are my trips to solitary. You know, when they built those uh, dedicated solitary confinement prisons, yeah. that was when uh, crack was driving a crime wave, and a lot of the people who were in jail were also people who really belonged more in the psychiatric system. Well, I think a lot, of the people in, a lot of the people in prison belong in the psychiatric ward. Yes, of course, but, they, but, they, but you know, in New York State, we used to have huge state-run mental right. institutions. Right. And when they got uh, shut down, uh, about, it took about 10 years for most of those guys to wind up in the prison system and the rest to end up homeless. Mm-hmm. 
say you can always thank uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest for that. Yeah. Because Ken Kesey kind of uh, helped with that one. So uh, why did you so, come up with the phrase incarceration nation? Incarcerated nation. Uh, because the men I met, they had a citizenship all their own. They, they were... Without knowing it, they were all uh, alike culturally. They had developed a culture bred from incarceration that unified them. And they didn't even realize it. They didn't know that they were part of a, a separate group of people who would always recognize each other even if they weren't in prison. Because I know when I meet an ex-con, we have something to talk about immediately. You know, uh, so... There's definitely a, a culture that comes out of being a, a convict, and uh, there's you know there's tastes that come with it, and there's things everybody doesn't like. Nobody likes child molesters, for example. All everybody in the incarcerated nation, uh, even the child molesters themselves, hate child molesters. You know, yeah. because they're like the, the usually they the usually they don't integrate them into the general population, except in Alaska. It, they it do. depends. It depends on how how. Uh, violent the state yeah. system is. Uh, in California, I know that they're mostly in protective custody, but New York State is considered a fairly easy system, uh, and th there are plenty of uh, sex offenders walking the yard. Mm. Also, um, you know, if you do something like convert to Islam, for example, then you can uh, avoid a lot of the problems with being a child molester or a rapist. Why, you because know, you left that part of your life behind? Yes, that's, that's how they look at it. You take your shahada, you change your name, you're like a new person. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Christian organizations have that same kind of uh, philosophy. Did you have um, a single cell or a shared cell? Well, I, I, I recently heard that uh, double bunking has been done away with, but I went through quite a few double bunk cells. And usually, when you get to a new jail, in my time, the first six months you were double bunked, and it is a—you wouldn't believe how small the cell is for two people, two grown men to have so little room and to have to, uh, you know, use the toilet in front of each other. It's just awful. And then after your six months are done, and you finally get your own cell, I guess. Maybe they do it so that you appreciate the cell. I, I don't know, because it was just a, an amazing relief. It felt spacious, even though the cells are only maybe eight by six feet. You know, they're not, they're not big cells. Uh, also, uh, the solitary confinement, for you to get a, a single cell, you have to go to a certain facility called Southport. And in order to reach Southport, you have to have, you have to be deemed a threat to anybody who they would house with you. Yeah. So you, sh you need a record of having attacked many uh, bunkies, not just uh, one. It's not enough to beat up one bunkie. You have to beat up every bunkie that they put in with you. Yeah, well, listen, but there are men who have done it. There, there are men who, they say to their bunkie, they say, look, I'm going to have to beat you up, so if you want to just go tell the cops right now that you're in danger, we can avoid it. But otherwise, I have no choice. I have to get out of here. Because some people just can't, they can't hack it. They can't live in a room so small for another person. 
I, I was locked in with a, with a person like that. He was dangerous. He, he would have delusions. He would hear things and see things that weren't there. And most of all, he thought that I was doing magical things against him. I could control oh. the radio. I could stop the, the music I didn't like from coming in. And, you know, he would threaten me violent, with violence for, for messing up the radio. Oh, that boy. was my hardest, uh, my hardest box. Yeah, I had someone accuse a friend of mine of putting a voodoo curse on another person. I wouldn't even really? know how to do that. <laughs> they actually believe that. <clears throat> well, I wish you'd stop sticking those pins in my doll. Well, hey, when the that guys hurts. and the dolls. All right, so you, you mentioned that, that you know some people can turn to religion to deflect yeah. uh, those around them from resenting them for the crimes they committed. But you, yeah. you actually put a mezuzah on your bars? Um. No, we had a, we had mezuzahs uh, on the chapel where we where we had our our, our services, but uh, we never you know you can't really put a mezuzah on, on your bars because it's not a real door. <laughs> if you had a real door, then I guess you could do it. But where would you get the mezuzah? You'd have to have the real the real parchment inside yeah, well, of it. I, uh, for that was not so initiated uh, when a Jewish person uh, moves into a new home. Um, they have a ceremony, say some prayers, and they place uh, on the door jam of the front door uh, a little, a little kind of container that holds a piece of the Torah, which is the blessing yes, over your home. And, and every now and then, you have to have your piece of Torah checked out to make sure you haven't lost any of the uh, lettering through through wear and tear. You know, I live in a very old building. And my apartment has two mezuzahs nailed uh, to the uh, to the door jam. Ah, better them than you. <laughs> better them than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, my building is in, it's in Flatbush, and none of my neighbors have any idea of what these little boxes are. Really? Quite a few of the apartments have old mezuzahs on them, wow. but. Uh, uh, I, but I have one that has a, a real parchment in it. I, I actually have a good one. I, uh, I love the chapter about the Jews in prison and that the majority of them, I mean, there are only 7% of the population in prison total, but most of them aren't real Jews anyway. <laughs> No, they're they're all Jews, Jews for the kosher food, and uh, that's why it's very hard to get an actual number of how many Jews are in prison. Because the number is so massively inflated by the number of Jews. I'll tell you, uh, the, the way the rabbis do it, they're not supposed to differentiate between who has a, who's born who's of a Jewish mother. Yeah. So they have this term, self-declared. A self-declared Jew is someone who is uh, halakhically not a Jew. So uh, they would write in Yiddish and in pencil in the top right corner of the, of the paperwork that would go with you, whether you were self-declared or, or, you know, a real Jew, the way they saw it. Uh, and all the rabbis had, had were Orthodox, except for one. I worked for a lot of rabbis, so I know. There was one rabbi who was a woman, 
Oh, boy. Uh, which means that her name was Susan Gulak. So she was, she was, she was a charming woman, but she obviously wasn't an Orthodox rabbi. No, no, she's by a Reconstructionist, so, probably. A uh, reform. Re, a reform, you know. But she got her job through uh, a lawsuit by right, saying, yeah. why are there no female yeah. rabbis? But the reason why every other rabbi who works in state prison is a male and Orthodox rabbi is because an Orthodox rabbi can minister to anyone, to a Reconstructionist, a Reform, to any kind of Jew, to a Hasidic Jew, while uh, Susan Gulak, if she ever had to deal with a Hasid, the guy wouldn't even touch her hand. Yeah, you know? <clears throat> yeah, little so, disco dancing. No. no, 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 you're not allowed yeah, to touch, so, so you're not allowed jail, to upon or touch a woman that is not thy mother, thy sister, thy wife, mother, sister, or their daughter. <laughs> You can't look. You, yeah, you, you're not allowed to look because uh, the Haftarah says men are pigs, and we can't be controlled. Yeah. So I worked as as, as clerk for for, for uh, Rabbi Gulak, and I noticed that Kaksaki, the jail we were in, wasn't getting any of the Hasids or Israelis. But Greenhaven, for example, had about fifty combined Hasids and Israelis, and they had a very orthodox, strict rabbi there as well. But but. Uh, the female rabbi, she didn't get any of these guys because somebody somewhere in Albany knew the difference and was careful not to send uh, the wrong Jew, the Coxsackie, because <laughs> the wrong one could eat, because he could easily sue and say that his religious needs were not being met yeah. by by a reform rabbi who's a woman. Right. She, uh, you know... Rabbi Gulak, she had me read a book. You know, I, I always used to try to understand people by reading, reading. You know, mm-hmm. and she had me read a book called The Red Tent. Oh yeah, and it was about. You know what it is? It's about how the the women of the Bible, like like uh, I think Jacob's wife. Right. Uh, anyway, they go to the tent together to menstruate, and they menstruate in the tent, and they talk about their husbands. It's like a retelling of biblical stories from a female point of view. And I thought, I will never read this except under the auspices of this woman giving it to me. So I'm going to go ahead and read The Red Tent. And I, and I did, and I actually kind of even enjoyed it. I, I didn't think it would be quite for me, but it wasn't bad. The life's full of, life is full of literary surprises. <laughs> sure, sure. So... <clears throat> You, you you meant you've mentioned that prison is uh, many 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 hours of sheer boredom, punctuated yes. by sheer terror. Yes. Yeah. So um, you decided to fill the boredom. What did you do? Well, first of all, I obviously I I read. I made a program for myself of reading all the most. Difficult, challenging, and what's considered best writing that we have in the Western canon. So during my years inside, I read all of Shakespeare, but I also read books that just nobody reads anymore. Like uh, I read The Whole Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. I read The Life of Johnson by Boswell. You know, I read these huge doorstopper, multi volume books. Oh, Proust. I read a lot Proust of uh, reading. exploration. <laughs> Diaries of the 19th century, lots, lots of heavy stuff, and of course I read the serious, you know, the, the best books 
I read, you know, James Joyce, and, and Proust, and Brazil, uh, all, the, all the heavy hitters. You know, out of, out of more modern authors, I read David Foster Wallace with all the footnotes, and Murakami, you know, 1Q84. I read all the, all the big books that you, you kind of think maybe you'll never have time in life to read them. And I happen to have an extra 10 years mm. in my life to read these enormous books. And I definitely used it. Because nowadays, I don't have time to read. I, you know, I'm lucky if I get a book read in a month. Yeah, because you're too busy writing or promoting what you're writing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. That's true. But it's that's only what, going oh, to get oh, more oh. like that. It's only going to get more like that as your career I, I kind of missed miss the time to read. I missed when I had a chance to read a thousand-page-long book. I, I just I don't get these opportunities anymore. But it is nice to go on vacation instead. You know, recently I went to Puerto Rico with, with my wife and had a lovely time. And it's just isn't Puerto Rico it's, wonderful? It's wonderful. I it's love wonderful. it. But. Not being in prison is what's wonderful. Yeah, well, being free I would imagine so. Yes, you you visited Puerto Rico, huh? Yes, I thought it was fabulous. Went on a Caribbean cruise. If I'd known ahead of time how much I was going to love Puerto Rico, I would have forgot all about going to see all the slave islands. It would have just stayed in Puerto Rico. I loved it. Yeah. Did you did you uh, go to um, the bar where uh, what's his name? Um, Fear Loading in Las Vegas. Love Diaries. What's his name? His bar. Uh, I don't know. I just saw the historical <laughs> stuff. You know, wandered around. I just love the feel of the place, the vibe, the history. I mean, it's just... Sure, like sure. That's, you must be talking about Old San Juan. That was absolutely beautiful. We, we managed to stay in the Hilton, and that was really, really nice. I, I like the the jacuzzis a lot. <laughs> the only thing is, is that I, I don't drink. And they they really push the, uh, the yeah. drinking party. Yeah, they do. And the, the casino, the slot machines were fairly loose, which was nice. Oh, you went. I didn't, I didn't bother with that. I went to Las Vegas last year, and I, I'm just not into it. I'm not into gambling. Yeah. It's just, I always think of uh, slot machines as being like, you can lose money on them. <laughs> well, you can also win. I mean, when win. we were in Vegas, we would, as soon as we won $50, we'd cash out and, and buy something nice to eat. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I was, I was at the Boardwalk Casino as I was working there at the time, for the like, for loot. And this lady, this was so when you hear the clang, 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 because all the quarters would come out of the machine, make all that noise. And I hear this uh, cacophony of quarters. And I turn around. And the ladies, you know, got these, you know, these cups filled with quarters. You know, all this money came out. And I looked at her and I said, ma'am, I said, take that money, take it up and put it in the safe in your room, and then come back downstairs and start over again. Because I want to remind yep. you, that's real money. <laughs> that is real money. And if you forget that, you're going to put it right back in that machine. Exactly. That's what they're counting on. Well, yeah, saying, yeah. They didn't you know, make in their prison, money there was room rent. quite a bit of gambling, believe it or not. Just as there's drugs. You bet your life. You bet your life and wind up in prison. That's, that's kind of what happened to me. But uh, <coughs> there were guys running football tickets in every joint I went to. And uh, there were poker games in every yard. 
uh, and uh, of course you could borrow, you could you could take, you could take a whole tab, get a, you know. I mean, it was really set up for gambling, and there was always the uh, atmosphere of violence around it to enforce the payment. But because I had a typewriter, I was constantly asked to type up the gambling tickets oh. because they needed someone who could do it quickly. They'd get the, 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 the uh, what do they call the spread? They'd get the spread from, from Vegas or somewhere. Uh-huh. Someone on the phone would bring them back. Usually somebody Italian, you know, was chomping on the guy talking to his next uh, Benny or something. They'd come back with the spread and they'd put together the football ticket. It would have to be typed up uh, within an hour or two in tiny little papers. And each of the papers was, the guys would buy them for a pack of cigarettes, a pack of Newports always, and they'd fill them out and give them back to the bookie. And then they would watch the games. And uh, if they if they hit big on on the on the ticket, they could win up to 200 packs of cigarettes. Whoa! Fortune. That's a fortune. That's a fortune in a slammer. Yeah. Now, I've got a question for you. Now, now I grew up in Walla Walla, Washington, which is the home of the Washington State Prison. Uh And in the prison, you had a certain number of, uh, not necessarily transgendered, but, uh, you know, guys wearing dresses and making a little extra money on the side, rimping the back. You're talking about what they used to call she-males. Yeah. I, I'm well aware chicks of with the dicks. And, yes, chicks with this, and I and I wrote about this uh, in uh, one of my chapters about the, it's called the Velvet Mafia. I saw quite a few of uh, you know transgender or cross-dressing men. I, I gotta tell you, you have some brave uh, motherfuckers. Oh no, yeah, they gotta be brave awesome. to be doing that. So yeah, to be walking around the hyper macho uh, environment of a prison in a in a dirty wig with some kind of Kool Aid on your face for makeup, you know, it, it takes some some balls. Yeah, takes uh, some balls, but they just don't have any. Yeah, and you know, when they're young, they usually they they have the protection of somebody strong and important, you know. But as time goes on, a lot of them have life. And I saw, like, I saw one person called Grandma, and Grandma looked like a like a pretty old uh, old black lady, you know. Except Grandma had, you know, male equipment, and. Um, People would make fun of grandma. Nobody wanted to sit next to her on, at, in the lunch, in the dining hall. And uh, grandma once, once said to me, he said, you know, they're all, they're all so mean in the day, but in the dark when they want a blowjob, they're really nice. <laughs> That's right. I realized that, that uh, a lot of these same guys who are openly, you know, homophobic to make a make a show of it, you know, especially, I gotta tell you, the guys who just recently converted to, to Islam, they would read up that part about throwing uh, homosexuals off a cliff, and they, they, they would really get under their skin, and they would persecute these poor people. Um, but that was all the neophytes, that was like all the brand new converts. Uh, so, so, apparently a lot of the same people who would throw insults and, and uh, Red balls at, at grandma during the day would try to uh, sneak into grandma's shower session. And I saw some of the, uh, not just older ones, but, you know, there was this uh, younger, younger one. Her, her name was Juana. She had hey, the most. Ju- hey, Juana? Sure. That's 
by the ball. That's exactly what the name meant. Yeah, you, you got it in one. Yeah, uh, you know when she first told me her name, I said Joanna. She said, "No, honey, Joanna." <laughs> and, I, and I was like, "Oh, I get it. I see." And uh, she she taught me how to braid my hair, and I had a very long ponytail at the time. I had uh, I grew my hair for seven years while I was in prison, and uh, Joanna had the most amazing tits. You cannot, I don't know who paid for these, but, but she had these silicon orbs that would just float in front of her. Uh-huh. And for the price of one stamp, she would give you a nice long look. How sweet of And uh, a, lot, a lot of people would come with their stamps to take a look. I, I, got, I got a free look because I was always nice. And, uh, and I was like, wow, I can't believe it. The problem was is that Joanna was not a pretty girl. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I don't even want to make the comparison. But, but she did, did not look very, very nice. Uh, probably the, dark, you know, the darkness worked well for her. In her favor. But Joanna would braid my hair. And sometimes, you know, she sounds like a lady. I can feel her big tits on the back of my head. Right, yeah. but then when I see her hands in my hair, her fingers were as long as my whole hand. <laughs> well, that's like the, uh, uh, the movie with uh, you know the Neil Jordan movie, uh, you know, with the, uh, the, the the woman. The woman isn't a woman. What? Uh, well, okay, the giant uh, The Crying Game. Yeah, Crying Game. Okay, just blew that one for you if you hadn't seen the movie, but. Uh, I went to see that movie with the woman who was then my wife, who unfortunately got Alzheimer's. It's not the movie's fault. And anyway, at the very beginning of the film, when you first meet this woman, she's a hairstylist. And you see her cutting hair, and my wife turns me and goes, that's a man. She knew, yeah. Immediately saw the hands. Said, that's a man. Huh. Yep, sometimes well. just tell right away. But yes, and then, well, Joanna, who was way over six feet tall, also had those, those long, long hands. But she carried it well. I remember there was, there was another one called uh, Kitty, and Kitty used to walk around with 80-year-old Mr. Cat. Ah. And Mr. Cat, he had been Manuel Noriega's friend. Oh. He, he, uh, his, he, the story was that his son had killed somebody, and Mr. Katz took the blame for it and ah. ran off with his money to Panama. And he lived with Noriega for, for the whole 80s. But then in, in the 90s, he got more back to America. And the moment he touched Florida, the feds jumped on him and arrested him. So he got a life sentence at the age of 78. Ah, there's not and, too much you can do just, about that. Yeah, well, he actually tried to commit suicide, and uh, he, you know, had awful scars on him. It was so really sad. But Mr. Cat, uh, he he loved uh, Kitty because Kitty was six feet tall and had long blonde hair and was vivacious. And his favorite, and Mr. Cat was only about five feet tall. So, and his, his favorite part was when the two of them would enter the kosher mess hall yeah. because they were both on the Jewish program. And Kitty would yell, "Here we are!" Kitty Cat. Oh, God. And old Mr. Cat would just turn red with delight. <laughs> he loved the attention, and he imagined that everybody was laughing and smiling at him as well as Kitty. And, and you know, 
So you, you see, I, I guess what you can derive from these stories is, is that prison uh, it, it did incorporate a lot of fun and laughter. It was kind of our way of uh, getting our time back. You now, know? Where, where, where did you keep the books? I mean, did you have to give the books back after you read them? Otherwise, you're not going to have a room for a thousand books in your cell. Uh, yes, of course. I, I kept sending the books home. And my family kept telling me to stop doing this because, first of all, no one can read as much as I'm reading in the real world. So I'm, I'm, I'm basically supplying my wife and parents with way more books than they could use. Uh, when I got home and I saw in New Jersey they had a whole uh, shelf of my, of my reading over 10 years. Um, although my wife did go through some of the, you know, she took out the titles that she found interesting. Uh, but here are the limitations, Burl. You're allowed 14 magazines and 25 books. That's what you can keep in yourself. Anything beyond that is a fire hazard. Hmm. They're, and they're tough with it. They count your T-shirts and socks. It's three pairs of, of socks, three pairs well, of... Well, what, what about if you had a Kindle? Could you have a Kindle in there? Oh, wouldn't that make so much more sense, huh? Yeah, but, you know. but they're very wary of electronics. I think that now they've switched to CD players for music. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was there, I left in 2014. People were still ordering tapes. And they would buy a Walkman in the catalog for $40. I mean, we were a captive market, so I guess they get charge whatever they, they wanted. Whatever the hell they wanted to, yeah. Yeah. No, but we, the Walkman had to be, um, they had to be clear so that you can't hide your, your razor in it and your drugs. But how, and, uh, how, how do they, wait a second, you hit on an important topic there. Because they're so concerned with uh, hiding the drugs and your weapons and all that. Where do they hide their weapons and their drugs if they can't hide them where you think they'd hide them? Well, the, I mean, the best place to hide your drugs is in your ass. Yeah, but I mean, that's, that's, does everybody have the same ass? Oh, hey, you, come here. No. Um, no, one person would usually be the uh, holster. He'd be the person who had the gun, the knives, mm -hmm. right? And he would take a risk for everybody else. He was often paid to do this. So that person would be the holster. As for the drugs, those were usually kept in, in, in the back, you know. Sometimes they weren't, they weren't all the way inside, they were just cheek. You know, the point would be to get past the pat frisk. Um, but uh, what, what do you want to know? How people used knives, how they hid knives? They had them out in the yard. There's like a buried the underground. underground. Now, I was talking to a prisoner one time. I was saying, we spent a lot of time shooting morphine under his tongue. I said, well, that's shooting nice. It? He would shoot morphine, but he'd shoot it under his tongue. So, well, that's where the veins are most successful. He must have had a really dull rig. <laughs> well, and also, I figured they're not going to see the, the uh, you needle know, marks. the needle marks. The track? Right, yeah. My question is, where's the morphine coming from? I figure probably from... Oh, well, I, I, I have plenty of morphine inside. I could buy two 30-milligram tablets for a pack of cigarettes. And uh, I really liked it. And uh, when I got out, <laughs> I, asked, I asked around. I said, hey, you know, there were these 30-milligram morphines that they used to give to the cancer patients. And it turns out that in the street, they cost 25 bucks each. 
So they were a hell of a lot cheaper inside. Because they're really powerful and they last all day. And they're a very smooth, nice, nice tie. Uh, for the first four years, I, I used them quite a bit. But then, um, I, you know, I, I had my first bit of trouble over drugs. And I just, I, after four years of that, I, I, I stopped. I was, I was clean for the last six years of prison. Um, but uh, My only but experience... My only experience with morphine, aside from being in the hospital having surgery, was I had horrible sciatica in Texas. It was screaming in pain. So they go into the, the hospital, so they give me a nice big shot of morphine for the pain, and, really? and nothing happened. Nothing. Really? So they gave me a second big shot of morphine, and then I guess both of them hit it once. And I was last seen oh my God. walking backwards in the supermarket, talking to myself. <laughs> And my daughter had to come and haul me away, but I wasn't feeling any pain. Wow. But, you, you know, um, I had sciatica, but I, I, it expressed itself in a strange way. Instead of hurting my legs in the back, the back of the legs, yeah. it hurt my legs in the front. For that reason, yeah, in the quad. For that reason, no one quite understood what was wrong with me. I actually thought I'd been poisoned. And uh, they wouldn't even treat me because they thought I was making it all up in hopes of getting pain medication. Oh, yeah. So finally, I had to lie down in the middle of the clinic. And so they kept telling me I should go to the yard, just like they did with the, with the nurse. Uh, but this, I lay down in the middle of the clinic, and they said, if you don't get up, we're going to take you to the hospital. So take me, said, yeah, me. that's what I want. That's what I'm asking for. Please yeah, help me. Threatening so you with what you want. taking me seriously. They took me upstairs, and they, they actually they took my urine, and they saw that my urine was brown, Yikes. which I guess is a, a sign of pain hormones. <laughs> so, some kind like anyway, that was when they finally gave me Percocet. But they had to, I had to eat so much Percocet that that I was getting way too much aspirin, and um, eventually I got off the Percocet and went on Ultram, Tramadol. That worked a lot better. And, and that, that damn it all. Drugs. <laughs> Screw it all. <laughs> damn it all, yeah. <laughs> oh, have you seen it on YouTube? There's, there's this woman that I, th- I think it's a comedy routine. A friend of mine thinks it's real. With the woman saying, you know, they say there's no magic pill that can make everything all better. Yak, yak, yak. But I got to tell you, drama mine. You take this pill oh. and it, and you own that drama. That's why it's called Drama Mine. Because you That's own it. Mean, yes, I know. <laughs> uh, well, we all know that you know, it makes uh, you smaller. I, I, my book has been... Uh, I, I kind of hoped that, that there wouldn't be a war in Russia when my book came out. Uh, because two days after the book was released, the, the war hit. Yeah. I'm sure it's not the, the best time to be looking for press. But <laughs> I, I've been doing what I can. Uh, I don't know. I'm Ukrainian. Does that, does that help? Well, yeah, I'm Ukrainian by birth, by, by my father being from there. You know, a lot of us are Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. from the bar, bar um, of the Ukraine. Yeah. I'm Polish, I guess. Well, that's that. Could be worse. <laughs> Could be rough. Well, but yeah, we had a we had a big um, today in Times Square in New York. We had a, a big rally for the Ukraine. The Wowie is a, a meeting of uh, uh, mice for a reason. <laughs> <It> says, <laughs> in the, uh, what's, I don't. 
I was wondering though, what 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 is the exact purpose of the rally? Because I don't think Putin's going to listen to what the guys in. Oh no, he's saying. not known for going. Could someone give me some advice? <laughs> <laughs> He's not over. I don't know what to do. <laughs> well, these guys, they come and they, <laughs> they shoot us. Well, so I was just reading a midrash just the other day, as most talk show hosts do. <laughs> it is when Moses is taking dictation from God and he gets to the line where uh, God says, let us make man in our image. And Moses says, wait a second. You know what you're doing here, don't you? You're just giving ammo to people who want to be polytheists. Well, you're using the kingly we, right? And God says, those who will err will err. Which I thought was a, a brilliant line for God to have. <laughs> those who are going to screw it up are going to screw it up no matter what. He says the moral of the story is if you have an important decision to make, Always consult other people. Don't just do it by yourself. So with God, it's a kingly wheeze. So I talked to myself about it, and I said, you know? <laughs> uh, what's the, what's the name of the book, Earl? The name of the book is Sentence. Not the, not the Genesis book, but Daniel's... The name of Daniel Genesis' book is Sentence. 